Welcome to Brains, a podcast exploring the inner workings of our brains and how film and television portray them. Hosted by me, a film and television editor, Sarah Taylor. And by me, writer-director, Heather Taylor. Before we begin, we wanted to acknowledge that the lands from which we recorded this podcast are part of territories that have long served as a gathering place for diverse Indigenous peoples. And we are thankful, as guests on this land, to be able to live, work, and gather here. On today's episode, we'll be talking about Anfantasia also known as mind's eye blindness. People can often visualize scenes, people, experiences, objects, and memories. But those with aphantasia, they cannot. I am one of those people. This lack of mental imagery was described as early as the late 1800s, yet it had remained a relatively unstudied phenomenon until 2015, when a study first introduced the term aphantasia. Since then, the amount of research about aphantasia has continued to grow. We have two special guests today who are here to talk about their experiences. First up, we have Tommy Bear, who is the founder of the Amphantasia Network. A quick reminder to our listeners that this interview should not be taken as medical advice and is for informational purposes only. Because everyone's brain is different, please consult your healthcare professional if you have any questions. I'm so excited that we're joined by Tommy Bear. I'm super excited to be here. And yes, I'm uh, deep down the aphantasia rabbit hole and I've been thinking about it a lot for many years. So yeah, excited to chat about it. Well, my first question is, tell us a little bit about yourself and why and how you became interested in aphantasia. And we discussed offline that aphantasia and and, and the way you pronounce it. Aphantasia. Aphantasia and aphantasia. Tomato, tomato. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A little about myself. Well, I grew up in Canada, Toronto, Ontario. I went to school in Waterloo, really studied kind of global affairs, political science, uh, did a master's in innovation and entrepreneurship, got really involved in like the startup community there. And during that time, got really got to see like the people build communities and build these interesting organizations that were doing really cool stuff. Sometime in that process, I realized that everyone I was working with was visualizing things in their mind and I couldn't do it. And it started driving me crazy. I was became very obsessed with this idea that, you know, everyone around me was like literally picturing things. Uh, got, you know, deep involved in, in the research. I was one of the first 21 cases ever, I don't know if diagnosed is the right word, identified as, as having aphantasia. So that was in 2015 when, you know, this thing was ever given a name. Since then, I've had people, you know, reaching out to me from all over the world saying, oh, I also can't picture things. What does it mean? And, you know, that kind of has sort of set this journey for me. So first, you started to recognize that I can't visualize things. But then how did you get to be part of the study that kind of launched the name for it and launched the understanding of what's going on in your brain? Yeah, it's you know, maybe a little bit of my like obsessive nature, but I, uh, you know, because I was so obsessed with this idea, I was talking to like everybody who would give me, you know, two minutes of their day to ask them to think of a horse and, and ask them what they, you know, see in their mind. <laughs> That's what um, I do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I did a ton of research. I spoke to a couple of you know professors at different universities. So at the time, I, I spoke to someone at MIT and Harvard and Stanford. And they were supposed to be the leading places around this idea of like mental imagery. Basically, nobody kind of had anything meaningful to say. The most important conversation I had at the time was like, oh, maybe just like don't be an architect. And I was like, okay, <laughs> well, that's not. <laughs> yeah, literally, that that's was the advice. <laughs> That's the worst advice. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, at the time, then it was very negative. It was like, oh, this seems like something bad because nobody knows anything about it. Everyone I ask about it tells me that they can picture things just fine. I was very fortunate, though, in like 20... 
2014, I came across a paper of a man who lost the ability to visualize and they wrote about him in in this like journal article. Uh, he had undergone a stroke during heart surgery and woke up without being able to picture things anymore. And you know, a curious neurologist from the UK wrote about his uh, experience. So I was lucky enough to find that you know that story. Reached out to the professor in the UK, and uh, that started, I guess, uh, you know, a, a period of studies and testing and questionnaires and things like that before uh, before the first pu- paper was published. What was the process of, of going through these studies and then discovering that there, this is a thing? There were like lots of different types of questions. So things like, I'll ask you, Sarah, do you know what's greener, a blade of grass or an evergreen tree? Can you tell me which is like a deeper shade of green? I'm going to say an evergreen tree is d- darker. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So traditionally, people thought you had to picture things in your mind to, oh. you know, compare the two images and then right. make a decision on which one's darker. But you know, we seem to be able to answer questions like that without needing to picture them in our mind. And so that it was those type of questions. You know, another one that he wrote a lot about was around like, can you tell me how many windows are in your home? Yeah. I, well, I can yeah, tell you. It, take, yeah. it might take me a few yeah. minutes. Yeah. I'd have to go through and like... Count each room. You know, I'm literally in my mind going, okay, I come in the front door and there's a window here. And I'm like, you know, I'm just kind of going through the motions in my mind. But I can answer the question if you give me, you know, a few minutes to figure it out. Yeah. And so it was it was kind of things like that, that really uh, was the beginning of the research. You know, they did write about my story as part of, as one of those initial articles. And so sort of the genesis of the Aphantasia Network actually came because I was interviewed by the New York Times. New York Times piece goes out and people are messaging me on Facebook, you know, every day for the next three months. So it was kind of how, I guess, everything got started. Tell me a little bit about the Aphantasia Network and how that all started. It started basically at the same time as New York Times piece went out. I just had this idea, I'm going to buy the domain, aphantasia.com, because I'm going to do something with it one day. So that was like, I don't know, just like a gut instinct. And because I had so many people reaching out to me on, on social media, they were asking a lot of really good questions that I couldn't answer. There was clearly no research for it at the time. And I was also reflecting on my own experience. Like when I first learned that other people were visualizing it and I wasn't, I would say there was like a time when I was pretty sad about it and couldn't find anything online. And, you know, I was like, well, maybe I'll put together a place where other people can learn about it and talk about it. And as new research and things come out, maybe, you know, there'll be a place where you can go and and learn. And uh, that was kind of why the whole thing started. And I was shocked at, you know, the receptiveness pretty much right away. So um, I, th- I know I wasn't alone in that. Well, I can tell you that it made it made me feel a lot better. I definitely had those moments of, of sadness and I've missed out in this whole area of my life. So there was some shame there. And then I went to the, you have a conference every year and I went to the conference last year and I was like, there are so many visual artists that like work for Pixar, like all over the place that have Aphantasia and it's just fine. It's just a different way of processing. So yeah, your, the Aphantasia Network really helped me process all of this wild information. <laughs> so thank you. I appreciate that. It's very exciting to me, for me to see all the different walks of life you know, that people come to the network from with Aphantasia because it really shows you that, yeah, you can be an artist, you can be a creator, you can be a scientist. Like there's like 
pretty much every domain you could think of, there are people out there with aphantasia doing it, you know, successfully. So, you know, that that is really inspiring to see. What other things have you noticed in your life that maybe it's impacted you in other ways? You could honestly go down the list because we're talking about something that is like a fundamental way of of perceiving the world like it's you know like a like kind of like a default state it's like a like a filter kind of on on your whole experience you could say okay when i think about you know relationships i'm sure that's different than someone who you know has vivid pictures of you know the people that they love and the great times and bad times they've had together like i can tell you stories about those things but it's very different it's very like i'm telling you trivia about my life and about the people that you know i'm involved with as opposed to like reliving my memories with those people so i feel like areas like that there's there's real impact definitely like it took me a long time to figure out why uh in school people were like highlighting their notebook or textbook you know, so that they could revisualize things that they were highlighting when they're taking the tests. I've never thought about it that way. Yeah, that's <laughs> only okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, exactly. So, like, learning and, and studying strategies, you know, are 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 different. So many things. I'm sure there's more with learning and stuff. I struggled like learning to read and difficulty spelling. And I remember uh, talking to a teacher recently, like when I when I knew what it was, I was like, "Hey, there's this thing. It's called aphantasia." And she was like, "Oh, that's going to change the way I." talk to my kids about it, teaching things, because I just assume everybody can see this. So I feel like spreading the word and like doing a documentary and talking about that this is a way that a lot of the population, I don't know what the numbers are now, but this is how we operate. And we might have to take information in differently and learn differently. And Exactly. Yeah. No, exactly. Because there is this implicit assumption that kind of everyone thinks the same way you do. Even if you have different thoughts, the way people think are is the same. And it's very, you know, what Aphantasia shows us, more than just that there are some non-visualizers, it's like there really is a vast a uh, number of individual differences in terms of how we kind of perceive and think about the world. And these differences can impact so many areas of our life. So a one-size-fits-all model for something like, you know, teaching in the classroom, you know, might not be the best approach for everyone to, you know, to get the maximum amount of learning out of everybody. There was a conversation I saw on Twitter where a writer said, well, if you can't visualize what you're writing, then you're not a writer. And I said, well, actually, it's a thing. It's called aphantasia. And people are like, what? It has a name? I think this, like the same thing with Sarah saying this misconception about like what you're able to do. And I think like for you, Tom, what are some other misconceptions that you've seen about aphantasia that you've encountered yourself or that, you know, maybe other people have? Probably the most impactful one from my view is that the misconception that imagery is always better than no imagery. But I think that there is potential downsides that some people experience with imagery, you know, that it, you don't really realize at first. Things like the reliving of, of traumatic memories in very vivid ways and involuntary aspect of imagery that you know, that took me, for me personally, that's what took me the longest time to come around to, this idea that what people, you know, visualize in their mind isn't always in their control. So images will just pop into their mind randomly without them choosing to do it. And and that, as someone who doesn't visualize, that was the most, like, the, the biggest thing I was, like, kind of like, oh, wow, maybe it isn't always better because of, of aspects like that. Some of the other more tangible ones, like, you know, people like, oh, well, you know, how do you read fiction if you can't like visualize the story? It's like, well, 
I mean, maybe it's different, but I definitely, you know, enjoy reading, you know, some interesting fiction stories and, you know, all the things that people think like, oh, how, what, like, because you do it a certain way, it's hard to understand how other people would enjoy it not doing it that way. But all those things people can enjoy in their own way and, you know, in their own way of thinking. I think often that difference between like expectation and reality for people is so much like in their mind, right? They have a picture of how everything should be and then it's not exactly like that and maybe they're a little disappointed. And you can boil that down to very basic things like at the restaurant. It's like, you know, I kind of know things that I like and sometimes I'll be out with people and they're like, oh, you know, I wish I had this or oh, they're, you know, like imagining all these different things in their mind of what it could have been. And to me, it's like kind of whatever is in front of me. It's like I know if I like it or if I don't, but I'm not like reminiscing on, you know, different options I could have chosen or, uh, you know, how something should have tasted. Just curious, is there something really like anything that new or, or something that's, you know, been put out recently that you think is like really exciting or really groundbreaking or really different? Yeah, absolutely. I think the coolest thing that's come out uh, in, in the last little while is the relationship between your physiology, your, your body response, and your mental imagery. And so one of the latest studies out of uh, UNSW in, in Sydney, Australia, showed that there's a relationship between the vividness of the pictures in your mind and how your pupils will dilate. So, for example, if I say, you know, imagine a beam of light. Heather, your pupils might dilate just slightly where Sarah, yours and mine will not because we don't actually see that beam of light in our mind. So that's that's very cool. And it show it shows this relationship between, you know, what we imagine and how our body responds. And that to me is like a really fascinating area of exploration and of science and all the different type of implications something like this might actually have. Yeah, so that's super cool to see. It feels like Australia is like a hotbed for research on aphantasia. UK and Australia are kind of leading the way in, you know, aphantasia research. That's so cool. Maybe I need to go on a journey to Australia. <laughs> And then do some studies with them or something. Yeah, do some brain scans and stuff. Absolutely. So what did they see that's different? Like what's going on in the brain differently for those who visualize and those who can't? Yeah, so it's a great question. And the biggest differences we see right now, uh, you know, coming as the non-scientist, you know, just the science uh, advocate. Uh, so disclaimer, you know, <laughs> the asterisks. But it looks like it's co called cortical excitability, which is uh, an area in the prefrontal cortex, which is like the sensitivity of the neurons that fire. There's a really great article on it on aphantasia.com for anyone who wants to like dive into how exactly that works. But yeah, if you do put, two people, one with aphantasia and one not into, uh, you know, a brain scan, you do see differences, not when you're in perception. So for example, you know, we're, you know, if you have a cup in front of you or something, we both look at the cup, the same regions in our brain sort of light up. And if you take the cup off the table and say, try and imagine that same cup, uh, well, different areas in our brain will light up. And so that, that difference you can see. Uh, when it comes to the imagination of of objects, so one of the interesting things you know that that I'm I'm really interested in and and we're doing some work on now is it seems like aphantasia isn't just in the visual domain. It's in it can be experienced in all of the senses. So you know for me it's a multi sensory experience. So I don't hear you know my favorite song in my mind or if I think of my favorite food I can't like smell or taste it. Or, um, you know, the feeling of, you know, a brick wall. I know some people can, like, imagine, like, they're running their hand down a brick wall and feel the texture. 
I think the conversation is just starting to get to that multi-sensory dimension of, of aphantasia. And I think there's a lot to explore, you know, in, in those other domains and what that means. And also th there are, you know, some people who don't see images, but still might have the other senses. Or there are some people who see pictures, but don't, you know, imagine sound and they don't even know that other people are imagining sound. And so, you know, everyone has their own kind of unique imagery profile. And, you know, what these differences mean in our life, I think, is, is like a super er interesting area of investigation. Totally. Yeah. I'm also multi-sensory and fantasia. Yes. <laughs> and fantastic. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But I do remember being like to my husband, okay, can you feel the dog without touching the dog? He's like, yeah. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> So yes, it's always, I'm like always, my mind was always being blown. Do they have an approximation of how many people they think are impacted by aphantasia in the world? Everyone has kind of different numbers. So there's no concrete stat because, you know, population-wide studies are really hard to do because like right now we're only doing it with like surveys and things like this. And even the type of people who fill out surveys, you're kind of like segmenting the population already through that. But the best estimates for like full Aphantasia is like 0.8% was the last number we saw. We've also seen estimates of like up to 3%. So it's probably somewhere in that range from like, you know, a half a percent to, to 3%. Depends like where you define the cutoffs to. It's a little bit murky. Some people, you know, say like, okay, absolute zero is aphantasia. Like that's kind of how I think about it is like you have no images. But there are some people who are like, oh, well, maybe you don't have good imagery. It's very maybe dim and vague and, you know, not not clear. And where do you do you have aphantasia or somewhere kind of like on a sliding scale? So, you know, I think these parameters aren't super clearly defined in the literature. Um, you know, I have my personal beliefs about it, but, you know, that I think you kind of need consensus before uh, there are like, you know, definite claims. Yeah, but still, that's a, that's a lot of people in the world. If you think about how many people are in the world, it's still a lot of people. Huge, I know, a surprising amount of people. And what's so exciting to me is that most people who have aphantasia still don't know it. Like, you know, just like me, we're going through most of their life not knowing everyone else around them was visualizing. Like, you know, that we don't really talk about things like this. And, and I think for most aphantasics, they just, whenever people talk about like picturing things, it's like a metaphor. Not like yes. literally picturing in their minds. So, yeah. So every topic we talk about, we like to see how is it being portrayed in film and television. And I discovered because of the Amphitasia Network that it was on Space Force. But are there any shows or films that you have encountered that talk about it? That's still Space Force is the only reference I've ever actually seen. Any press is good press, so I'm happy it was in there. I didn't love how they portrayed it, but that's better than nothing. Okay, I haven't seen the episode. Yeah. How did they represent it? There's two characters, and the main character asks him to, like, visualize a purple elephant riding a skateboard or something. I don't know. I'm just something like that. I'm terrible at the replay of things, so you're asking the wrong... <laughs> the wrong <laughs> no, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm asking... But, oh, uh, man! But basically, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, no, it's okay. The, uh, Why did I do that? I'll just go watch the clip. Okay, I'll find the clip. <laughs> you know, but the essence of it was that, he, you know, he couldn't do this thing, and it came off very, like, he was like an uncreative, unimaginative person because yeah. he couldn't do it. Like that was right. kind of like the feeling you got uh, watching it and being the first reference of it ever, maybe, you know, I would have done it differently, but that's okay. 
now one of the things that I just can't not see is in how many movies and TV they talk about picturing things um, and talk about the images in their mind. I mean, I never, I guess, really paid attention to that before, but now because I'm in the in this kind of world, it's all you know. I see it in basically you know everywhere. Everywhere. So that's that's super interesting. I catch myself saying it still even though I know that I don't. But I'd be like, oh, I was picturing this or I was visualizing this. And I'm like, well, I'm not actually doing that. But it's just part of our lexicon. It's just something that we say, because that's what I would have said before, not even knowing that that was not happening, right? It's so wild. So someone is listening to this podcast and they're like, whoa, <laughs> yeah, this is me. What are some resources where they could go find more information. <laughs> this is a great place to plug something. Aphantasia.com would be the place. <laughs> you know, and so we have we have a lot of resources on there in terms of like articles, personal stories, discussion forums for people to talk about it and ask questions. And so you can kind of read, you know, all about it. There's a, a little quiz you can take um, sort of guides you through a number of questions called the VVIQ. So, you know, if you Google Aphantasia test, will probably be the number one result. And uh, it'll sort of bring you through that. And then it'll like talk to you a little bit about aphantasia. And then, you know, my other plug is for a new survey that we've been building for a long time called Imagination Spectrum. And that is looking not at just the visual domain, but that multi-sensory aspect of aphantasia that we've been talking about. Um, and so we're looking to, you know, kind of quantify these individual differences and, and kind of see how these differences you know, impact our life, work, and well-being. And so, you know, if you're interested in kind of seeing where you fall on that that wide spectrum, um, you know, you can take that at, at imaginationspectrum.com. My, you know, I'm going to say vision in air quotes, even though I don't <laughs> see it, <laughs> you know, is to kind of build like a personality test for this ability of mental imagery. So people can, you know, across, anywhere across the spectrum can kind of learn about, you know, their own imagination or imagery profile and see kind of how it might impact, you know, their, their life. And the research is still in an early stage. So there's, you know, it's not filled with a whole bunch of stuff, but there's some, you know, some, everything we do know so far, uh, you know, we, we try and keep it updated as much as we can. And so if anyone's interested in that, yeah, go check it out. That's amazing. It's a great resource. We'll definitely share it out and say, everyone take this because it will help you to see like the spectrum of experiences, which I think would be amazing. Exactly. What do you want to see as a future for Amphitasia Network for you? Where, you? where do you want it to go? I would think I would say sort of two things. One is that, you know, I believe that there is so much power in understanding your own unique strengths and understanding how you know, you can kind of uh, make best use of, of your aphantasia or, or whatever it may be, kind of better your life. So that, that you know, I think it, it too easily can go to a place of a disadvantage. I have this thing and, and be a disheartening kind of element. But I think there's a potential for it to uh, be something different, to be something that, that, you know, uplifts people. So that's kind of really the main underlying vision behind the aphantasia network is how do we, you know, help, People see aphantasia as a strength and identify what those strengths might be and develop those in people. And, and, then, and then broader than that, you know, the, the conversation around our individual differences and in mental imagery in general, I think, is something that, you know, most people are totally unaware of. I think it's a really interesting area of exploration. And I think we'll learn so much about, about people the more, uh, you know, we, we explore the topic. And uh, that's really kind of like, what my, my whole life is focused on right now. So <laughs> I love it. It's great. 
Is there any one any last thing that you want to add or say before we say goodbye? Thank you so much for having me on. You know, for anyone who might be listening and figuring out for the first time they have aphantasia, you know, it can be shocking, but, um, you know, there is uh, quite a, quite a number of people in the same boat and it's not all downside. So, uh, just keep that in mind. Awesome. And we're here for you. Aphantasia Network's here for you. I'm here Absolutely. for you. Tom's here for you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Thanks guys. Uh, have, have a great day. Okay. Our second guest today is Janet O'Connor, writer of the upcoming feature Picture It, probably the first film highlighting the experience of having Anfantasia. And I had the pleasure of editing it. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for coming today. I am delighted to be here. So I started off as an improviser. That's kind of my first love. And then through that became involved in theater and also as a playwright. So it's all kind of just evolved. And then eventually into screenwriting, all of it through a comedic lens, usually. Um, I was also a radio performer on CBC uh, sketch comedy show, and I'm now writing for another CBC radio show. So lots of writing. That's really the direction that my career has morphed. And I have absolutely love it. And it's writing that's really brought me more recently to learning more about aphantasia, largely because I have it. Early on in my career as an actor, I was doing a Theatre for Young Audiences show, and I was supposed to be miming that I was driving a car. And I was just brutal at it. And the director, who's a dear friend of mine, was like, what is wrong with you? Why can't, <laughs> can't you picture the steering wheel? And this was in my late 20s. And at the, I finally went, no, like, why would I be able to picture a steering wheel kind of a thing? And he was like, because everyone else can. And so it was new <laughs> to him as well. And he yeah. was just fascinated. So rehearsal just stopped and we had to have a conversation about the fact that I actually couldn't picture the steering wheel. And so that was really the first time in my life that I'd actually really understood that that was different than mm -hmm. everyone else's approach. Even though like for years, I would be so bored during visualization exercises yes. and drama class and stuff. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, and then it's only recently that I learned you know, the name Aphantasia and then had sort of incorporated into a project that I was working on. Your story about the director is very similar. When my one day I remember chatting with our little sister and she's an artist and she said, we were talking about books and she's like, oh yeah, like I see the whole world. And I was like, oh wow, like you're so creative and so like visual that you actually see it in your head. And I thought it was just, she was the novelty. Mm. Right. That, no, but that, that only she could see the landscape in her mind because she was just so creative. And that I was, yeah, I was the one that was normal, not realizing that there is like, this is a legitimate thing. And that was, yeah, I was when I was in my 20s. And then for myself, you actually helped me discover that it, it had a name. I was actually the editor on Jana's film she wrote called Picture It. And the character, main character has Amphantasia and starts explaining it. And so I'm like doing the opening scene and there's like a voiceover. I get the voiceover, I drop it in and I'm like holy shit, stop the train. <laughs> this thing has a name. This is me. Like, it was like mind blowing. And then I think I promptly messaged Jen. I was like, yes. oh my gosh, I have this. And I can't believe I'm working on this film with you. And this is amazing. And I love that so much. And it was so meaningful to me that you, that you felt that way too. And it's funny because looking back, it seems as I've been doing more research and reading about other people's experiences, it seems that anyone who has it, that's kind of how they find out is either someone saying to them that it's a thing and then going, oh, right. Or else like someone saying, why can't you picture that? And then, it, you know, kind of evolving from there, the awareness of what it is. I was looking that up too, exactly the same thing, seeing all that information about how people found out 
was usually in a public space and they were doing something and and someone just questioned the way that they viewed the entire world. And suddenly they're like, oh, I have to reevaluate everything, everything about myself yes. to understand like the point of view that I have. And yet everything also really falls into place at that time too. You know, like it's such a bizarre thing, but then also you go, oh, everything about me makes so much sense now. So true. <laughs> I remember like seeing therapists and they're like, I just, you just pick up, pick a safe space. Like if you need to re- like uh, calm yourself down, like picture what, what feels safe for you, like a forest or a meadow. And I'm like, okay. Like I, I was like, this doesn't help me in any way. This is making me more frustrated. And then like not knowing, oh, okay. This <laughs> actually does help there. some people. It does. Yeah. And I thought like, yeah. I thought, wow, this is so, this is so woo. Like how are people so woo? And it was totally not that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm really curious. What is the impact of this on your day-to-day life? Yes. Yeah, so I think probably the biggest, I mean, I just have a constant monologue in my head, constant. So The thing that I really realized is it all kind of fell into place is that I don't actually have any visual memories. So my memory of being a little kid is almost non-existent other than stories that people told me about events or experiences or funny things, usually funny things, because that's kind of how our family operates. Um, So I have a ton of those kind of stories filed away. And then as I got older, older kid and teen, then I started that internal monologue and my awareness of it really kicked in and I started filing it away, not consciously, but I have a ton of like you know, feelings and experiences filed away as sort of like these stories about my memories, as opposed to what people would kind of think of as actual like memories being the visual things. So that's a huge piece is that everything that happened to me, like prior to being probably, you know, young elementary age is just non-existent. And people, when people talk about these really vivid early memories, I'm always like, wow, yeah, I don't (laughs) have any of that. And then I think one of the other big things is that I have this, um, of all things, I took a visual communications diploma really early (laughs) and I had a, and it was a display design major. So we did a lot of like the basic drawing classes and stuff like that. And I would be great if I was drawing something that was in front of me or like life drawing. I was great at that. But when it came time to doing the displays, they always wanted us to do like the sort of sketch of the design and then do it. But I'd always have to do the design first. I'd have these huge you know, funny, conceptual, edgy plans in my head, but I couldn't draw them out before I actually did it. So I just kind of accepted that as the way that I was and that, you know, it was so dumb that we were supposed to submit these sketches ahead of time. But again, it's like, of course you want, you know, as as someone who's going to be eventually paid to do displays, you should have the ability to do some like sketches to show people beforehand. But yeah. And, and so I think like that's an impact on my daily life is just that kind of reverse order of things. And also I know when my partner who is my boyfriend at the time, my husband now, he went to India for three months early on in our relationship and I was devastated and it was sort of pre like easy video calls And I realized it's because if someone's not in front of me, this sounds so weird, but they kind of disappear unless, you know, I can look at photos obviously and stuff like that. But, um, and now like with the kids, if they go away or something, you know, we're apart for a little bit, I can do a video call. But before that, it was just like, well, they're just gone now. (laughs) So that's like a super weird thing, but I don't know if you feel that way, Sarah. Yeah, no, I definitely have the thought of, I I don't picture, obviously I don't picture them. Yeah. I think like with friends, you know, like say high school friends that I haven't seen in years, 
it's a real weird compartmentalization where it's like, I can pick up with them immediately where we left off, but it's not that I necessarily miss them because yeah, they yeah. were just out of the picture. But, yeah. um, but as soon as I see them and then we'll just have this, you know, usually an instant reconnection and it's really great, but I, I'm okay with that, a giant gap where we yeah. don't actually connect which maybe, I don't know if that was related or not. I think it's really interesting because it made me think about how I talk to people about ideas and how I have a show where it's all about grief and it's all about like getting grief triggered by something and then having a visual memory that's associated with a space and to be like, oh, I mean, I'm in the space. Like I remember this time with my mom and they can see it, but in a way you wouldn't that's that wouldn't be something that you experience and so when i'm pitching it and telling people about it i say grief comes in these flashes but not to people who don't have mind's eye unless it's like an audio flash because i've always been super auditory so it might like make a flash of like the monologue you know what i mean it'll it's like a weird i a friend that's a really great improviser talks about the file cabinet in his brain. And I totally relate to that. And I think that it also, you know, like that's how I store information, I think. And so it would probably like shrunk open the file cabinet drawer and pull out the trauma audio, I guess, or yeah. like the, you know, the story about it or whatever. It's the story. But, that's, yeah, yeah, for me, it's like, it's not, because I know with, with Amphantasia, it's like all senses. So like people can hear, like, so I, I can't visualize, I can't hear anything. I can, I have a monologue inside my head, but I don't actually hear my like in my ear and then some people can taste even though there's no taste and people can feel even though there's no feel oh i can do i can do taste like yeah, i, I can, don't have like, any of that. I, if i imagine a uh, wet bitten Ooh. it makes my it makes my teeth my teeth <laughs> it makes my teeth like feel like ache. that that tea i can tinny. i can feel and taste it like you mentioned a sound can bring you a memory Sometimes a smell can, so this is kind of silly, but like my grandpa drank coffee and also had very bad body odor. So if I smell a specific type of body odor, it reminds me like a memory of my grandpa. Like I feel, I, I think of grandpa. So there are things that trigger memories, but it's not, or it triggers an idea of that person, but it's not like a memory that I will see or hear. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. When you dream, do you see images? I don't dream a lot. Like it's pretty rare, but I do. I feel like it is visual. And, yeah. and yet when I wake up and remember it, it's again, it's like the story of my dream that mm. I remember. I don't remember the visuals. And yet I, I'm really confident of the fact that I do visualize in my dreams. Yeah. So I, I can't really explain it, but yeah, I think I do. But again, it's not like I'm not a vivid dreamer by any means. And so it's pretty rare that I'll actually remember a dream. And when I do, it's just kind of like the story of it. But yeah, <laughs> so weird. And I have very vivid dreams, but like you say, I remember the story of the dream. So I think it's fascinating that we both went into the career of storytelling, that our our whole inner world is stories that are stored in our brain. Yeah. The first person that ever said to me, this was a few years ago, because I said to on a Facebook post, someone had posted, and I said something about not being able to picture things. And a friend who's also a writer said, oh, and they, and they were actually the one that pointed me to... Um, the uh, one of the video explainers that I'd seen that I saw about aphantasia that's really good and she said maybe that's why you're so good at dialogue 
Mm. And I was like, mm. oh, okay. Yeah. That maybe is the thing because I'm always listening and, you know, it's all very auditory and I do love writing dialogue. So it, that's interesting too, right? Is that it can open up different. And for you with the editing, it makes so much sense because you're such an amazing editor and the visuals are there. And so everything else you're putting into place with all of your amazing timing and, you know, I think that's so cool. When I first discovered that this was a thing, I was like, should I be open about this? Like, is this going to affect me getting work? And then I was like, no, actually, I'm the, it's the perfect thing. Like, I'm doing the perfect role because only the footage that I have is what I have. And it's not like I'm going to get a bunch of footage and be like, well, they didn't shoot that how I thought it should be. It's like, this is what I have. And this is the puzzle I'm going to put together because this is, this is what it is. You're a super editor. (laughs) <laughs> like honestly that makes total sense right because yeah. that is it's it's I actually was thinking about that too um when you asked that question about the impact on daily life I was thinking one of the other things about me is that and this is maybe why I love improv is that I think I'm very present in the moment like I'm not imagining other things really but I'm very focused on dynamics and how people are feeling and mm-hmm. to like a degree that drives my husband crazy. And like, cause I'm always like, Oh, I think this person is thinking this and he's just like, what just, you know, but I think it's because I'm not distracted by like thinking about other things yes. or visualizing other things. It's just like, I'm actually present in the room. And so I think that that makes sense with what you said about the editing too, right? It's like a gift as an editor to not be like, well, that would have been better. So when I write, I'm writing, you know, this is what the setup is. It's geography of the space. How are you telling the story then as a screenwriter that comes at it from a different perspective? Yeah, somehow I can still do that. I don't know. Like, it's funny. One of the first times I ever tried writing a play was for a 24-hour playwriting competition. And I wrote about a real-life event and and it went really well and it was great. And the one of the judges, because it was a competition, one of the judges said that he almost felt like I was directing it in the script. Mm. But it wasn't intentional. It was just my way of explaining what I saw in my mind and maybe as a result of the way that I had to figure it out. So somehow I still do that. But I would say probably the biggest thing that I do as a writer is it's just improvising in my head and being in the moment. And so somehow describing things, even though I can't see them. Sometimes I see writers get lost in the in the picture of the of the world in the room. Yeah. But I wonder if it becomes more factual in a way because it's not you you don't you're not distracted by all the things in the room that you could look at. I can definitely say that I am an underwriter. And then sometimes I might have to expand on the world a little bit because I've just been so like concise. For example, that first play that I wrote was set, it had kind of a circus vibe. And so because of that, there's so many like tropes that you just know. So I wasn't like inventing something necessarily. It was something that was kind of grounded in a reality. It's funny because even to this day and and definitely as a kid, I don't like fantasy stuff generally. Like, and I don't like, I always use Alice in Wonderland as an example. And I don't know what that pokes in me that makes me just, you know, my skin crawl. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, maybe I'm a much more literal writer. Yeah. As a result. That totally makes sense to me. And I was going to, uh, well, ask now about things like horror. There are a lot of films and things that expect you to visualize something that will scare you without showing you. And the same thing with fantasy, especially in books, they're explaining worlds and things that don't exist and you have never seen before. So the weird thing about like any books, even as a kid, I would always skip really descriptive passages. And again, I didn't understand why. Me too. But it would be like boring, like, yeah. and, and it, it wasn't like, again, it wasn't like a conscious thing or just a boop, I'll just skip. And then there were some books, like I love Jane Austen. So there's something about the way that Jane Austen writes, like obviously very comedic, 
you know, of a time. And I would say she's pretty sparse on, it's much more about character, dialogue, dialogue, all the things that I just love, right? So Mm -hmm. I would skip huge chunks and just kind of give up on books if they were really too much exposition. It was just like, meh, you lost me. (laughs) So, and then when it comes to film, like, I definitely, I feel so terrible because my son loves Wally and I can't, I watched it once. I, I cannot handle movies that don't have any dialogue or very minimal dialogue. And I recognize that it's lovely and he adores it, but I can't sit through it again. And, uh, and so, yeah, anything like dialogue based is definitely going to have me. And when it comes to horror, one thing that I think is interesting about horror is that I'm, I'm terrified of it. I don't really go there. I was at a sleepover and the kids decided to watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I was in grade five. And so I just remember hearing the description at the beginning about it being based on a true story and then sitting in front of the TV, plugging my ears and like jamming my fingers in and out of my ears so I couldn't hear the movie and, but still being traumatized by having heard just that one little thing. So for me in the, in the realm of like horror and of being like disturbed by something, it's more about catching a little bit of it and just playing the same thing over and over in my head Mm. and torturing myself with that, as opposed to imagining like the thing that's so scary, if that makes sense. The music from Unsolved Mysteries, for some reason, used to just get me. And even as an adult, it would play, that song would come in and I'd be like, and it wasn't (laughs) that I was seeing it, but I'd get this feeling from the, anyway. Mm. So interesting. Yeah. How do you approach writing and performing? Like you've kind of talked about writing, but how do you approach performing? Like if you're trying to get into a character? Yeah, I think it's a lot. um, It it really is based in that, that improv aesthetic of just being present in the moment. And the things that I've kind of excelled in along the way, I mean, particularly like you think about being in radio, it's kind of actually weird to be, you know, in radio and and not being able to picture anything. But at the same time, it was really all about my voice and timing, Mm. right? So that made a lot of sense. And I've been really blessed to work with a a local playwright, Stuart Lemoyne, in a number of his plays. And his plays are very much dialogue-driven, character-driven. And so they're not really requiring... And then they're also very based in a reality. So, you know, when you do the show, you have a glass of water, you have a piece of pie. Like, I'm not having to actually pretend to be driving the car anymore. Thank (laughs) God. Because that was humiliating. I'd be curious to know how many people in improv, I'm sure there's just like a divide, like a sort of interesting, probably representational divide of the population of people that have it and don't. It's not a a lack of creativity and not a lack of ideas, but it's just a very different way. It can be a bit daunting to try and communicate the ideas in a way that's maybe acceptable. Like I know that in terms of language, I'll say sounds great. I'll never say looks great. Mm. You know what I mean? And so you think about the terminology that we use to speak to people, like you were saying about the grief piece. And it's like, I will always say sounds great. I will never say looks great and not deliberately just because that's my language of, you know, sound as opposed to. And so I think that's a thing that's interesting in talking to creative people, right? It's like, what's their sort of dominant mode of operation or. Mm. Yeah. And I say, I, I say, oh, I picture it like this. But now that I understand that this is something that I have, I'll say it and I'll be like, that's not the right word. But I still use that because it's a common terminology, right? Totally. But I'm like, but I'm not actually picturing anything. But I, it's like I understand it this way or I think about it. It's, for me, it's like I'll, I, I'm thinking about it. I'm not seeing it. I'm not hearing it. I'm thinking about it. Yeah. 
in the beginning of 2020, I did some psychological testing because growing up, I had a hard time learning to read and stuff. And I had discovered Amphantasia right before I went in for my first testing. And I said to the psychologist, I was like, hey, I just discovered I, ha I don't have a mind's eye. I don't visualize. She's like, oh, that's really interesting. That will totally affect some of this testing. Because like in that testing, you're like, here's a shape. Recreate the shape that you saw. Remember these words. Or here's a picture. Now draw the picture that you just saw. So she thought it was really interesting and kept that in mind when she was like going through my testing and results, I guess, that there is a visualization component missing. And that if she didn't, she's like, I didn't know that this was a thing and I'll be aware of this going forward because there could be young kids coming to me who are struggling and it's because they can't visualize. And so she, in the end, was like, you do have some visualization processing issues that I could further investigate, which I haven't yet, which just, which I think is just Amphantasia. Huh. Because she's like, your audio, your, your storytelling through verbal and written, which I thought kind of surprised me because I never thought that I was good at writing because I couldn't spell. This is like my internal stop or whatever. But that's where I excelled. Like my, my scores were like extraordinary on that. But then in some of the visualizations things, they were below average. So it was interesting. She couldn't give me an exact IQ because I scored so high in some areas and lower in other areas. And it was the visualization thing that was missing. So interesting. So more inv investigation on this concept or this idea that we're not visualizing the same. There's still this standardization of like, okay, well, these are the tests you have to take and this is how you get IQ. Well, obviously everybody's brain's different. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, it was just fascinating. There's someone that I know that isn't able to write or speak. So in doing so, isn't able to have their IQ tested because IQ tests are so based on those things, even though they're able to do a lot of other things. And so the way that we've created tests and the way that we've created ways to monitor these things, but there's so many types of intelligence. But in this very specific realm, I wonder how many children, like you said, Sarah, going in and and her testing them and scoring low on visual and being essentially marked down or mm -hmm. classified in a different way because their brain sees things differently. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I even think about like the idea of being a visual learner, auditory learner, kinesthetic learner, like all of that wasn't applied to my schooling because it wasn't really being discussed at that time. And so, and I mean, obviously now people are even like breaking all that down more and they may have even sort of discarded that as important. But I, I think about how important it was to me, like, and now I think about how terrible I was at math for so long. And it makes a lot of sense because I, you know, I don't picture the numbers, but I also think about how the best I ever did in a biology class was a teacher that would um, have us write notes, but she would also say them. I did amazing in that class. It just was lucky that she was teaching. She had a teaching style that worked for me. And it wasn't about her doing a specific thing to help me learn. It was just luck. And so you think about all those times that, as you say, people who don't succeed because they just don't have the luck to be taught by someone who gets what they need and can. And then also like, how could, it's tricky, I imagine, for teachers to like teach in every single mode, but it seems like they're trying to do so more now. But yeah. Mm -hmm. And not realizing and teaching the way that they probably learn best. So you lucked out that that teacher either was very aware or that's how they learned best. So they were just teaching the way that they thought was best by how they learned. Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. 
thank goodness. Not that I did anything with biology, <laughs> but I was sure yes. proud. You felt good though. That's right. <laughs> yes. really yeah. good. Like, thank goodness I, I did really well in that biology class. It's done me very well as a theater creator. <laughs> well, bringing it back to film, I'm curious, why did you decide to write a character who had Amphantasia? So my first foray into screenwriting was in comedy, in a sketch comedy show. And through that, made a connection with the folks who started GIFT, Girls in Film and Television. And they were really terrific in giving me this opportunity to they commissioned me to write my first screenplay. So I know that's not very, you know, very often that you're in that position where you get given the opportunity and knowing that it'll actually be made. The reason why I took the approach of having the lead character have aphantasia is that because of the COVID challenges, there were so many restrictions on how the film could be structured and shot. So, you know, it was going to be a really bare bones crew People couldn't be in scenes together except for the adult acting couple who were married. And so they were able to be in scenes together, but all the teens pretty much couldn't be in the same room. So it was really trying to conceive of like, okay, and it was being shot at a school, but there couldn't be any extras to like make it a school. So we, you know, hit on this idea that it was going to be like a sort of capery film and that was like an after hours thing. And I just really felt because we were spending so much time with the main character and because it was going to be so much about her inner monologue, it related really deeply to me and my inner monologue. And I also, having done a lot of writing as a theater for young audiences playwright, I always find it's best when you can weave in the things that are based on your real experience. So even yeah. when you're tackling these big, broad topics, if you can actually draw from your own experience, it just brings a depth to the writing and a depth to the, the piece that ultimately makes it more universal in a strange way. Like if you try to keep it really high level and theoretical, it just doesn't have that same resonance. So that was part of it too, was making it make sense to me why we were hearing so much from her inner monologue. And then also because I'd never heard or read anything other than like a scientific article or some of those like really short little YouTube explainers about aphantasia. And so I thought maybe here's a way to talk about something that'll be because this is such a pared down um, screenplay in terms of like what we can actually do. This is a way of bringing something to it that'll be new and novel and hopefully interesting um, and tell a story that as far as I had come across, though, I will 100% acknowledge that I have not sought out content about aphantasia in terms of like books and films. So there may very well be a ton of aphantasia capers out there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that was part of my motivation too, is just like, give this character a reason for um, being in their head and something that creates an obstacle for that character in the caper part of it too, right? Like something that's going to make the experience that she's in more challenging. Those were all reasons for it. And, but primarily it was like that necessity is the mother of invention thing of like, okay, why can we not all be together? Why? So yeah, it was uh, that. And then, yeah, just trying to add some texture and some interest to, to it. I love that in the film, I'm going to give one thing away, you actually created the scene of you driving the car <laughs> in the film. So if anybody goes out to watch it, it hasn't been released yet, but when Picture com picture It comes out, you will see Jana's story of discovering how she realized she didn't have mind's eye. Anyway, it was, it's such a great scene. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so happy that it got made because it is, it's a miracle that in the midst of, you know, everything that was possible despite all the odds in COVID is kind of a miracle. You're creating that representation on screen of aphantasia. And I know you said you don't have maybe references to other films that do that. But what would you like writers and creators to keep in mind 
when thinking about creating pieces of work that will also be relevant or, you know, that will help people with aphantasia to be part of the world that they're creating? Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting things about representation is that, you know, the question of whose story is it to tell? And one of the things I felt really strongly doing this was realizing that it is a spectrum. And so just because I'm, I really did endow the character was sort of my experience of aphantasia so that I wasn't really speculating on it. I'm not creating the like seminal work on aphantasia with this. It's like my tiny little experience. As creators, we often do seek out those like quirky things or the things that sort of, if you're not affected by it or if you're affected by it, but it doesn't like, you know, destroy your life, it can feel like something that's like, oh, that'll be cool, yeah. you know, and, mm-hmm. and it is. But yeah. then equally, it's like, oh, but what if someone is like, I think yes. when I was looking at, um, I can't remember if it was the CBC doc project that I listened to about it, but they were talking about like some really serious experiences, like mm-hmm. devastating experiences that people would mm-hmm. have with aphantasia. And I was like, oh yeah, of course, this could be really debilitating for someone. Yeah. And, mm. Yeah. But that, no, that's totally fair. And I think just to expand on that, even as we create things, like what are some things that you said, um, Chainsaw Massacre, that the sound is the thing that scared you, not the thing that you imagined. But I'm just curious, I know that there will be some people who listen to this that are creators or writers. What would you love for artists to do to help to make it a better experience for you? What do you want to see more of? Yeah, that's interesting. Well, less of those descriptive passages. No. <laughs> Hang up your writing pen, Dostoevsky. I'm trying to think if it, I can't remember which, or maybe it was Victor Hugo. I think when I read Les Mis, I was like, nope, skip, skip, skip. Um, yeah. Crime and punishment. Yes, yeah. it was a, was a punishment. <laughs> it was a punishment. I know people always talk about film and television being a visual medium. But for me, it really is when the dialogue pops that I'm really drawn in. And so I love it so much. So I guess, yeah, it's not not forgetting about that aspect of it, maybe. Although, you know, I guess most people don't. But I do think that, you know, generally people are drawn to film who have these big, expansive visual imaginations. But then it's interesting, right? Because especially you think about television and right now, it's like golden age of television. And a lot of it has to do with writers, playwrights, kind of making that transition into TV. So, and I don't, I mean, not to say that all playwrights are not visual either, because obviously they are, but uh, yeah, I guess just more dialogue. And if you write a movie about a robot who's in an apocalyptic (laughs) world, uh, maybe just throw in a few, a few more lines of dialogue (laughs) for the poor mother who's desperately wanting to connect with her son over this and just can't. It's also weird, though, because the emotion of it is also like it does affect me. So even as much as I say I kind of check out when there isn't enough dialogue, the emotion of Wally is I almost I don't want to go back for that reason either, because I feel the emotion so deeply. So it's a one two punch when it comes to Wally. It's like not enough talk and just deep, deep like emotion that I can't process regularly. So Well, this has really turned into like a real slam against Wally. (laughs) Sorry, Wally. (laughs) Sorry, Disney. Yes, sorry, Wally. Sorry. (laughs) Do you have some recommended like resources or things that people should can look to that you found um, helpful when you were 
Yeah, I still haven't really dug in too deeply, but there were a couple of really great YouTube videos that were very visual. Like um, that was, they were both made by, I think both of them are female identifying graphic. I would call them like graphic artists who, or um, they are almost like comic book kind of style. Um, and I think they both have a version of Aphantasia and they just do a really great job of like simple explanation. And I think one of them was actually pointed out to me by that person who said, Oh, that's called this. When I said I couldn't picture anything on that fake Facebook post. Um, so I recommend those, especially if you're trying to explain it to someone else without losing their interest. <laughs> Cause I think, you know, sometimes things like this, it's like some people are super interested and then other people are like, okay, whatever. Um, so it does a really good concise job of explaining what it's like. And then the doc project was super interesting. And um, yeah. And that person who was featured like as sort of the, the main character, um, the main subject of that doc project uh, created a website that I just looked at um, recently because I, as I was looking through the resources and there's a quiz on there about um, visual visualization acumen, basically. Well, I just want to say thank you. I'm so happy that uh, we were be able, we were able to speak about this and something that I wasn't really aware of and Sarah brought to my attention and then to be able to to speak with you about your experiences, it's made me think very differently about how I write and how I think about writing and also just how I think about the world. So, I mean, on my behalf, thank you, because I feel like I have in a way like another piece of my brain has opened to think, oh, there's all these different facets. I just... I feel like my brain has grown today. <laughs> I love that. This seems to be a theme of everything we do on this podcast. Me and Heather are both like, whoa, our brains are growing. <laughs> well, thank you both. I was so excited to be invited on your podcast. I admire both of you so much separately and what you're doing. And the fact that you're doing this is so cool and awesome. And so to be interviewed on this podcast means a great deal to me. And uh, yeah, and just... Um, I, I really love, especially the fact that as both as writers, Heather, that you and I just have such a completely different approach, but it just goes to show that people will find their way of doing something if it's something that they're passionate about. And, and, but equally that we can be like um, sensitive to each other's way of working and, and modes of operating and stuff. So thank you both so much. So I had the most fun ever. Uh, with these two interviews because I haven't ever really spoken to anybody else who uh, lives with aphantasia. I could have just kept asking questions. <laughs> do you do this? Do you feel this? How about this? Just you wait till we do our ADHD uh, I know. episode. <laughs> Sorry. I'll be like, I'll be like, mm, silence. <laughs> no, it's because we will just keep talking so much that you won't be able to speak. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. I'm used, to, I'm used to that already, Heather. I'm already used to it. <laughs> anyway, if there's anybody out there who discovered that they have Amphantasia by listening to this episode, please reach out to me on, on the old uh, DMs on Instagram. I will gladly talk with you if you ever have to, you know, work through anything. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. Amazing. Um, so I guess we should move on to our awesome things. Now, mine is the most awesome. I don't know what you're going to say, Sarah, but mine is the most awesome. I, full stop. <laughs> It's a competition. Always a competition. Always a competition. <laughs> the most exciting thing happened. The James Webb telescope finally became operational. We saw the first images of this telescope. So just so you can understand, so there was a telescope called the Hubble, and it was able to see uh, 
into space. And essentially, you're looking into the past, which is wild, um, because we have to wait for the light to come to us. Now, they've been working on creating a new telescope and putting it into space and essentially, like, putting something out there that they can see even further into the past, essentially, further into the universe. So, essentially, just so you know the difference, the Webb's telescope's primary mirror, I'm going into, like, details here, is 6.5 meters in diameter, and the Hubble's is only 2.4 meters. So, that gives the Webb oh, wow. about seven times as much light-gathering capacity, so then it can see further into the past. Hmm. So, essentially, it should be able to see between 100 and 250 million years after the Big Bang. So, that's 13.7 billion years ago. Weird. So, it's not... 13.7 billion light years away because it's much further than that because of the expansion of the universe. So, yeah, we're seeing the past. I don't think my brain can uh, understand that. <laughs> I don't I don't I don't get it. But it's awesome. <laughs> the pictures are beautiful. The pictures from the past that were taken today. Well, yeah, basically we'll see like imploding stars and things like but those are long dead. They've been dead for billions of years. That's so weird. Is that cool? That's very cool. So someone out there in that in whatever that side of the universe, if there is sentient beings there, they are looking up into the stars. They will be seeing the light of the sun. Uh, it's pretty small, so probably not. But let's say if they see the light of the sun, they will see it of the time of the before the time of the dinosaurs. My brain is exploding. <laughs> I don't understand. We're essentially time traveling. It's I know yeah. that's. So cool. I'm sure Heather will be writing some sort of show about this. <laughs> it's probably just, already percolating, probably sticky notes on her wall right now. <laughs> My awesome thing is about nature. I've just been enjoying the warm sunshine that we're experiencing right now. And my, my flowers are blooming in my garden. And I've been taking like, it's like it's a newborn baby. I've been taking so many photos of these flowers. The flowers look the same day to day pretty much, but they're beautiful and I love them. What flowers are they? Lilies, various different lilies. You're exploring the outside of your home, and the James Webb Telescope is exploring the outside of the universe. From a bajillion years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to relate the two, okay? It's all connected. <laughs> We're all connected. We're all well, connected. <laughs> Well, I guess that's the end. I'm going to make it the end now. This is the end. So you don't like my singing. What's what's happening? Okay, finish. Go on. I'll let you read. How do you know I'm reading? <laughs> dun, dun, I mean, dun. I am reading. <laughs> Anyways, thank you everyone for listening to today's episode of Brains. Brains is hosted and produced by Heather and Sarah Taylor and mixed and mastered by Tony Bao. Our theme song is by our ever wonderful little brother Depish and our graphics were created by Perpetual Notion. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us and let your friends and tell your friends to tune in. <laughs> just let them. Just I mean, let your let friends listen, please. Stop stop taking their phones stop away. Stop taking away their right to listen. Okay, you can reach us on Instagram or Twitter at Brains Podcast spelled B R A I N S podcast. You can also go to our website at brainspodcast.com where you can contact us, subscribe, and find out a little bit more about who we are and what we do. Until next time, I'm your host, Sarah. And I'm your host, Heather. 